0: Today's episode is brought to you by Amp Robotics. Did you know that Amp Robotics is transforming the economics of recycling using advanced artificial intelligence guided robots? Yep, the company's high-speed industrial robotic system, Amp Cortex, precisely automates the identification, sorting, and processing of material streams to extract maximum value for businesses that recycle municipal solid waste, e-waste, and construction and demolition materials. And the AMP Neuron AI platform operates AMP Cortex using advanced computer vision and machine learning to continuously train itself by processing millions of material images and adapting to changes in a facility's material stream. Plus, the AMP Insights web-based data management system captures all of this material stream data, providing insights and important alerts to operators so they can optimize their recycling business even more. And I've actually seen the system in action myself, and it's awesome, to say the least. So go ahead and learn more at amprobotics.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste360's Nothing Wasted podcast. On every episode, we invite the most interesting people in waste, recycling, and organics to sit down with us and chat candidly about their thoughts, their work, this unique industry, and so much more. So thanks for listening, and enjoy this episode. Thanks to all of you for making the Waste 360 Nothing Wasted podcast such a smashing success. And you've spoken, and you told us you wanted to learn even more from our esteemed guest. So here's the result of that it's a mashup of highlights from some of our most popular episodes. Please enjoy these insights from some of the most remarkable people in the industry, and thanks again for listening, and enjoy this show. Listen as Anne Germain from the NWRA talks about the changing technology of the waste and recycling industry. And your role as Director of Technology when you initially joined NWRA, and also your previous background seemed to give you a, a front seat to observing technology in the industry, how do you think technology has changed waste and recycling? So
1: one of the things that um, we've seen over the years is, you know, just the availability of from a collection perspective, you know, we've got so much technology that's going to help us improve the safety For our industry, you know, I know you're aware that the industry has experienced a lot of issues with respect to um, health and safety, in particular for our drivers and and, um, people that are on our trucks. And so automation certainly improves things significantly, keeping people off the streets, ideally, and then um, having some of those cameras and to be able to detect and retrain drivers should there be any issues. So I, I think there's a lot of technical improvements that have been made. And then technology al- has also helped us be able to get a better sense of what our uh, data is. You know, I think increasingly we're seeing people utilize technology for pickups in the carts, in, uh, in some of the containers to be able to establish when containers are full and, you mm-hmm. know, what's in the containers. So I think it, things are happening really Rapidly, and um, the changes are extraordinary.
0: So, you were part of a session at Waste Expo called "Single Stream versus Dual Stream," and I, I felt like you played a, a great devil's advocate with questions that made us all think. What were your takeaways from that dialogue?
1: So, I certainly understand that as we're looking at you know lower commodity prices, everybody's trying to figure out a solution, and so this has uh hit everybody like i mean across the countries it's been a challenging couple of years but right now i mean the prices for recyclables have dropped significantly um as you know and so i think a lot of people are saying okay so if prices commodities have dropped maybe it's uh you know and we know that contamination is is a factor in that and there's been a lot of attention focused on trying to reduce contamination so a lot of people naturally might think to themselves like okay if we switch to dual stream will that change things And frankly, you know, the answer is it's always easier to start with a cleaner product. You know, if somebody else is doing the work for you and the labor for you to segregate the material to the maximum extent possible, you know, you're going to have a cleaner product. However, there are a lot of things that I think people that um, want to make the switch aren't taking into account. And so that's kind of what I was trying to make sure that people understood. So one of the the biggest things is that collection is a huge portion of the cost associated with whether to go single stream or dual stream. And we already touched briefly on the um, safety aspect and trying to stick with automation to the maximum extent possible. Mm -hmm. And so going for automated collection for recyclables and yet trying to go to dual stream is extremely challenging. Most dual stream collection is done through a bin system and that requires somebody to be out of the truck. That's a lot slower and that is a lot less safe. And it also means that when you, you have to have specialized trucks, such as split trucks. And when you do, whatever uh, compartment fills up first, you're stuck at that point. You have to go back. So uh-huh. if, even if the other half of the split truck isn't filled up, you're done. There are split trucks with split carts that can be done in an automated fashion, but, you know, you still have the restriction of the, if one side fills up faster then you have to go back there, there might be like a workaround such as, you know, doing every other week collection for, you know, one week you do, um, Uh, fiber, and then the next week you do containers with automated carts. But then that also means that the consumers or or the residents are going to end up having more bins. And, you know, we're already asking them to have a waste bin if they have to have two more bins for the recyclables and then a fourth bin for organics. You know, there's going to come a point in time where there's going to be a revolt for just from a space perspective. I, I don't know how much space most people have. Have. And so, you know, there's a lot of operational considerations there, just from the collection side, that don't necessarily translate on the on the um, processing side. And then once you get to the processing side, there's other considerations on the dual stream, single stream that uh, a lot of people don't think about. And in fact, until I was preparing for the uh, presentation, I hadn't thought a lot of this through. I got schooled on this by some of our members (laughs) where they were explaining that, you know, even if dual stream comes in, their single stream plant won't necessarily be, because they're not designed for it. If you have a 30 ton per hour capacity plant and you're just bringing in fiber, then the container side of your plant is doing nothing. And so that's, not, you're not going to get 30 tons per hour because the fiber side of your plant is not designed for 30 tons per hour. The entire plant is designed for 30 tons per hour, and you want the entire plant to be working. And so, when they receive dual stream product, some of them are telling me that they're trying to meter in that dual stream product and mixing it in with the single stream. So, then you're not accomplishing what you were trying to at the outset. And so, for a community to switch, you, you ideally want to have a dual stream recycling facility to take your material to. And then, you know, there's a lot of thought about the collection implications that we had previously discussed. There is also the last part, which I touched on, about the perception that, okay, the other two speakers explained that they had done a huge outreach campaign and uh, a marketing campaign to explain to people about the transition that they were making from single stream to dual stream. And they ended up having very clean material. And one of the things that I suggested was if you had a similar outreach and marketing campaign on an existing single stream facility, you're also going to experience a huge drop in, in contamination. Education, we know, is going to be productive at getting more much cleaner product, but most people, unless they're making a change, aren't making the investment in trying to, um, educate the public about what the right way to recycle. And even the, um, communities that did continue with a lot of their education campaigns, a lot of them were really focused on trying to improve or increase recycling rather than necessarily giving any negative messaging about Uh. don't put this material in. Instead, saying you know, recycling, it's the right thing to do. You should do it. But then they wouldn't give them the lessons about, well, this is bad. Don't put plastic bags in. Keep your lithium batteries out. You know, If you have uh, soiled food in your containers or you you have a half full of liquid, you know, make sure it's empty and dry, you you, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, That kind of messaging was less prevalent because people just didn't want to discourage um, the public by giving that kind of negative message. So they were so focused on positive messaging uh, to increase the recycling rate that I think, you know, we, we lost something along the way.
0: And here's Steve Menoff from Civil Environmental Consultants and he talks all things landfills, the future of landfills and the current state of landfills. Enjoy. So you talked a a little bit about um, the state of landfills today, how they're environmentally sound. Um, On the other end of that, are are we running out of land and and what solutions are helping with this issue?
2: We're not running out of land. We're running out of political acceptance of those, okay. uh, I guess would be the polite way to put it. Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of technologies out there to treat waste, uh, to manage waste, to process waste. If you look at most of this country, we do have a lot of land and we do have a lot of landfill capacity. And it's, it's a very cost effective way to environmentally, you know, manage the waste. So a lot of the technologies that people are, quote, unquote, discovering now uh, were, you know, developed under EPA grants back in the 1970s. So I don't think it's a question of whether the, these technologies work. I think it's a matter of whether they're cost effective or not. And, and does does that, does that justify doing those when there is an environmentally sound way of managing? it? I think you look today at typical cycle of managing wastes, you have recycling, you have diversion. Um, we're seeing a lot of the organic waste being pulled out of landfills. Um, that significantly reduces the waste stream that goes to landfills. I think EPA data shows that pretty much about 50 percent of the solid waste generated in the U.S. now winds up in a landfill, as opposed to, I mean, say 25, 30 years ago, that number was probably 85 or 90 percent. So I think we've made you a know, large stride in increasing the different approaches we take to managing waste, to extending the life of the landfills that we have and, you know, recovering, you know, recovering waste through recycling and diversion. You know, the question becomes, are there markets for those things? You know, Mm -hmm. I've seen the news stories about China no longer accepting our recycled materials. So, you know, that creates a problem in what to do with the materials you pull out of the landfills or, you know, you, you pull out before the waste goes to the landfills. But that said, I think we've taken a lot of measures that Will extend the life of the existing landfills and reduce the, re- the requirement for how many, how much more we need in the future.
0: And then, could you please explain leachate and how it's handled at landfills and, and why it's important?
2: Sure, leachate is the liquid that's generated at the bottom of a landfill. It, it's generated from a number of things. Uh, when a landfill is active, rain, rain and stormwater go into the landfill, and you know mix with the waste, and create this liquid that comes out at the bottom. There's a lot of waste streams that generate liquid of themselves. Um, and this material is, is captured at the bottom. As I said, we, we have leachate collection systems right above the, uh, the liner containment system at the bottom of the landfill. And a lot of things happen with this material, depending on the quality of the leachate. So one scenario is direct discharge to, to a public sewer that goes to a publicly owned treatment plant. Um, In a lot of cases, if the landfill is more remote, you'll have to uh, truck that liquid to a treatment plant um, for treatment. So if I could tie a couple of things back together, we talked about recycling and diversion and how the amount of MSW going to the landfills is reduced. So as that number goes down... What we're seeing is a lot more industrial waste going to landfills, non-hazardous industrial waste. So, what we're seeing is more sludges, um, industrial processing wastes being mixed with MSW in the landfills, and this has generated a leachate that has different characteristics, chemical composition than traditional, you know, municipal solid waste leachate. As a result. One thing we're seeing is pre-treatment facilities at landfills that the landfill owner operator you know is building and operating, so that he's treat, pre treating the leachate before it goes to a publicly owned you know wastewater treatment plant, and it meets their acceptance criteria. In some instances, they're actually doing complete treatment on, on site at the landfill and then discharging the, the clean, you know liquid.
0: You've talked about waste-to-energy, what about landfill gas-to-energy? Is this happening at some of the more mature landfills in the U.S., and is it really being used as a resource at this point?
2: Landfill gas-to-energy system, which we see at the vast majority of municipal solid waste landfills in the United States, where we put vertical wells, horizontal collector systems into the waste mass and recover the methane from it, and that methane can then be cleaned and processed, and again, could be fed into the grid in a variety of ways, either as gas or converted to electricity. But we see that at a lot of landfills today. Probably the majority in the United States are now doing that. Very few are just you know, f- flaring off, which would be burning the gas. In all instances, most landfills are collecting gas, whether it's to recover it or, or to flare it off. Uh, that prevents odors, so it's just a, a matter of sound landfill management is to map gas and to manage leachate. One thing we, we've seen you know, in the past dozen years or so is elevated temperature landfills as a result of, we don't really know, um, but a number of factors, uh, specific types of waste that the landfill has taken um, can react. Deeper landfills, wet landfills, those all seem to be contributing factors And and a lot smarter people than me are are trying to do a better job of defining. But the leachate from those sites needs to be treated generally, you know, specific treatment uh, facility. Um, I think what we're seeing is, um, to circle back, why leachate collection and, and gas collection and removal are both critical is those are the mechanisms by which heat You know, travels in landfills. So, if we can remove the heat from landfills, we can prevent potential problems in landfills. So, what you're seeing now, what I what I alluded to earlier was over, you know, since Subtitle D, we've seen improvements in the design of liner systems, leachate collection systems, and landfill gas collection systems. As you're seeing, much more significant uh, structure infrastructure to remove leachate. And, and gas from landfills in order to prevent heat from accumulating in those landfills.
0: Listen to Sean Jennings from WastePro, where he talks about the MRFs of the future. And Sean, you oversaw, like you mentioned, the building of that MRF in Florida. How is that experience, and, and what do you think uh, makes today's MRFs ready for the future of the waste stream?
3: Well, I, I think that processors today react to the labor challenges and the material quality expectations. And we have time to adapt and to invest in the, in the technology that we need to to make the material clean and to uh, react to the, the difficulties of of finding sorters. So I I think that like we've been seeing over the last couple of years, uh, we have to, Invest in what we need to do to to have the material um, that's acceptable, and then we have to charge to process that material so that the recycling process is sustainable. So I I think that um, really I, I know that that some municipalities are considering whether or not they want to keep single stream, but because of labor challenges, I'm sure that will that will stick with single stream, and the processing will just will react to handle it
0: how do you view technology and and how has it changed or improved your business?
3: Well, I think that in the, in the waste industry, we can expect technology to to just continue to assist the industry Mm -hmm. and also answer our, some of our safety needs make equipment that's safer or less physically intensive. I think that there will be more and more technology that will assist You know, our wide range of systems from routing, communication, customer experience, sales, uh, digital marketing. But I mean, really people who want to look for a technology that will totally turn an industry upside down. If there was some sort of technology that could allow us to handle our material in a way other than a landfill, that would, that would turn this industry upside down. Mm-hmm. so that that would be interesting if if we, if we could find some technology that could make it financially feasible to remove the landfill as a factor
0: and here's matanya horowitz from amp robotics and he talks about ai and robotics in the waste and recycling industry and now that you've been in it a while are you seeing other uses for ai and robotics in our industry in particular
4: yeah um so uh so at, at AMP, uh, we we actually uh, well we actually started in construction and demolition material, but, but quickly switched over to single stream recycling. Um, and there, you know, there's there's a lot of tough problems we're trying to solve. We're trying to identify all this different packaging, even though it has all this different all these different labels. There's so many different types of you know different types of resins, different types of fiber. Um, and in retrospect, it was probably the hardest problem <laughs> we could have picked, um, especially the ones we went after first. Um, uh, we have a great partnership with the Carton Council, um, but we found you know the Cartons have so many different graphics and stuff on them. We really had to find a great solution to make it work well, um, which we did, uh, you know, of course. But but yeah, now that now that we have that, um, we're starting to look at all these other domains. Um, we have a great uh, partnership with uh, ERI, um, uh, sorting out e-waste. Um, and the technology has really transitioned to that very nicely. Um, and in fact, I wish we'd <laughs> maybe started with e-waste first. Uh, there's all these um, things we found that that uh, make it a little bit easier. Um, and then more recently, we've worked with our partner, uh, Riocean, in Japan to launch uh, our technology into construction and demolition recycling. And then we're continuing to look at all the other niches that you have in the recycling industry, um, automotive scrap and others. And, you know, it's incredibly exciting for us. We we had this thesis when the company first started of, you know, you think about all of these different sorting applications where you have people standing by conveyor belts sorting out things by hands, you know, not only in recycling, but in all these other industries, you have hazards and different dangers on the lines, different issues with getting enough people to do it because it's not the most thrilling job. Um, And the thought was, you know, if, if we have this new technology, this artificial intelligence that lets us identify material as well as a person can all these applications start to be opening automation. Yeah. And so, so we're seeing, uh, even applications outside of recycling, um, our results are pretty preliminary, so I probably won't dwell too much on them, but, sure. um, but absolutely, you know, you just imagine that, uh, this kind of, uh, in robotics, we call it a pick and place problem. You're, you're picking something and you're just putting it somewhere. Uh, and, uh, yeah, they're, they're ubiquitous, um, kind of spreading our wings a little bit, but with doing that in a way that doesn't uh, take our eye off the ball of, um, Recycling,
0: and then you said that AMP is is digging in as as deep as you can to see if you can bring down the cost of, of recycling. So tell us about that. Do you see that starting to happen as well?
4: Yeah, you know, uh, so the the kind of you know mission statement, if you will, about AMP is to change the fundamental economics of recycling. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, of course, uh, we're a startup. We try to be ambitious. You know, <laughs> yes. and have a very you know Silicon Valley esque you know, slogan. But um, yeah, where our our hope is that the kind of the the technology that we have, this artificial intelligence, can really open up new doors um, in recycling, and really not just be a incremental improvement. Although you know, of course, that's that's kind of what we're contributing right now, but really do something substantial um, that can go uh, you know pretty deep in the industry. So we started with this problem of uh, sorting different materials and trying to do that uh, with a system that requires very little retrofit. Mm -hmm. in these recycling facilities, and we think that's key. By minimizing the cost of deployment and and essentially making it as easy to adopt these systems as possible, we think that's how they get uh, sort of mainstream adoption and, and, and wide acceptance. But we see that as just the beginning. There's all these different pain points in the recycling industry that have been difficult to deal with. So sorting is one of them, but also maintaining quality, understanding operationally how well a facility is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing if a piece of equipment goes down. Um, so there's lots of things we're doing now with our vision system to try and provide that operational insight to facilities. And and the reason it's so hard in recycling is that it's very hard to make a, a MRF look like a manufacturing facility when you can't, when it's difficult to measure what uh, is moving through a facility. Um, there's some there's a saying, you know, what you can't uh, measure, you can't control. And if you want to know the purity of your fiber or something like that, if you can't measure the fiber and the contaminants, you know, <laughs> where do you even begin? Trying to address these other pain points using uh, this artificial intelligence as a sensing mechanism uh, using our vision system. That's one of the things we're doing. But I'll also trying to look at other mechanisms where intelligence be used. We've had discussions about using it to control other equipment. Um potentially even developing new kinds of equipment, um, things like that. So so we see the robots as just the beginning of a longer journey in, in terms of deploying this technology. And this is just, yeah, version one uh, and, and an exciting one. We went after what we hope is kind of a big opportunity for us.
0: And here's John Hanselman from Vanguard Recyclables talking about how a data-driven approach can help you have a competitive advantage. And you said that you've taken a, a really hard data-driven approach to this. And could you tell us a little bit more about that? And and is that a competitive advantage? And do you think that's why you're succeeding where others have have failed in this area?
5: It, it is. And I think, you know, we we early on, you know, I, I came from the solar world and the technology world before that. And using data has always been kind of core to our, our businesses and the the thing that we found out in running anaerobic digesters is there wasn't a lot of good data in the us about the production conversion rates, how you you know what food created what byproducts, um, you know how volatile the systems might be, um, and then a, an awful lot of the mechanics of actually Taking that renewable natural gas as it comes out of the the digester, which is um, very wet and and with other byproducts in it, and saying, okay, how do we? What's the best way to turn this into energy? Um, and that's been um, really did. so. I think early on we probably overdid it, um, and we're collecting data at a level that probably seemed a little goofy for you know a couple of little funky. Uh, farm-based digesters, but it, that's actually turned out to be our salvation because um, I think we now know as much as anybody about what we can put in, when we put it in. We've changed our technologies um, pretty significantly from our first two digesters um, to the last three that we've built are, are almost not recognizable as the same um, machines. And we did that because we really started to understand that that you really needed to know and you had to have a much better control and segmentation on the whole chemical process
0: so how successful have you been in helping haulers turn waste into high value renewable energy
5: i think pretty successful it's it's certainly the the behavioral change is really hard yes uh, i think for everybody and and we're also such a small portion initially of any haulers business that i think you know to their credit um it's retraining their staff. Then you've got to go retrain your customers. Um, it's a small portion of the business. And is it really cost-effective or important for them to do? And I, and I think for the longest time, a lot of it was our education and just sitting with our hauling partners and saying, hey, guys, we think this is a very sexy part of your business um, because of the renewables. It's something that more and more of your customers would like to see. Certainly within the food industry, um, that transparency of where is the waste going is something that that we're, we see as a demand over and over again. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of folks in the hauling community have tried to kind of push back um, and and not have to do. Um, for obvious reasons, it's expensive. It costs time and energy, and, and it's not historically something they've done. Um, but I think when you look at you know, kind of the the leaders, the folks who are really out there leading the food industry, whether it's on the manufacturer's side um, or the um, retail side, those folks are all looking for transparency. They want to know where their waste goes. They want to know, first, they're looking real carefully at where does your inbound um, product come from? You know, you've, we've all been into those restaurants where they've got the list on the wall of all the farms that have sent Uh, the products in that day and uh, which, you know, where your lettuce is coming from and where your tomatoes are coming from. um, I think it's as important to those, those people to see where the food goes and to know that it's, it's going to beneficial reuse um, is really cool. And I think that's, that's our hook, which is to say, Hey, this is, this is a neat product. It's a differentiator. If you do this, it's something that that your competitors may or may not actually be doing. Right. Um, And we're very lucky when we have wonderful um, partners like Whole Foods um, or the Patriots uh, who've actually taken a lot of effort to get the food waste out of their waste streams and to us and kind of leading by example.
0: And listen as two fantastic speakers talk about post-China and the current state of recycling. It's a must listen.
6: So one of the things that when I talk in the community that I like to tell people is China was not the crisis. When China with the National Sword Policy um, went into effect, what that did um, and what I tell people is that it illuminated a crisis that already existed and that was the fact that Quite frankly, most people don't know how to recycle. Um, They were doing what they thought was right for a long time, and what we actually ended up with was a large contaminated waste stream. So for a public authority, as we look to address this issue, from a leadership perspective, I serve on the executive team, and we had some plenty of roundtable discussions when the effects started to trickle across. Um, I would say by the time it really hit the East Coast in our area, the effects of China's national sword policy um, really started, we started to see the impact around March or April of 2018. And so we sat around and said, well, there's some, we can either do nothing and wait for things to shake out, but that's not our philosophy, that's not our MO. We are a leader in our community, and we pride ourselves of being a leader in the public sector in our industry, and we, we need to do something, and we need to react. And we knew that things weren't going to fix themselves on their own. No matter what shook out with the market, we we saw that one of the primary issues to address was cont- contamination in in the bin. So even if other markets opened up, eventually they were going to move to the same standards or um, we were going to have to find new markets and they're going to look for clean material. So when we look to address contamination, My team, we did a lot of research. We talked to our MRF partner. We talked to our comparables across the country. We did quite a bit of research. And what it came down to is, as I said before, people don't know how to recycle. They are just inherently confused, but yet they are convinced that there is a particular way. So we spent, how do we address this issue? This is a huge thing to tackle. This is behavioral change. People have been trying to figure this out for years. So how do we get our community um, to react and to begin to respond and recycle appropriately. So we came down with a three parts, what we call solution. We haven't fixed the issue yet, we're still in the midst of this, but we saw that there's going to be three ways that we can address the situation. The first one is to simplify the recycling process. We found that people were just confused. No matter where they went, um, there were different guidelines. They worked in you know with 60 different municipalities in Lancaster County that you can imagine that could get a little confusing. So So I work in one area, I moved in from another area, I have a friend in another state. And everyone does it a little bit differently. You're in a public space, they do it differently. You're at a business, they ask for something else. And so um, I believe, countrywide, we have reinforced the good behavior that you're a good citizen if you recycle. And I can't tell you how many times people say to me, I'm so proud. I put more in my recycling bin than I do in my trash. And I shock them and say, well, then you're doing it wrong. And, of course, you know, the, the, oh, my gosh, how could you be that blunt to me? but it gets their attention, right? And so we realized we need to simplify it for people. Folks are hit with messages, millions of messages every single week coming at them. And when when they're doing a split second behavioral decision, they're done with something and they need to put it in one of two places, you need to make it simple for people. And we also said, I mean, now we're in the baseball season and um, when a pitcher is having, to use a metaphor, when pitchers are having difficulty in a game and that game is done and this becomes a repetitive process, what do their coaches do? Their coaches say, we're going to go back to the fundamentals, we're going to go back to the basics so that you can learn, again, to pitch correctly, and then we'll add some additional flavor into it. That was our approach with recycling. Let's go back to the basics of the four, what we identified in talking with our more four material types that have a, from a volume perspective, have the most impact environmentally. Economically, there's a strong domestic market for it, and even if there's there's international market, there's good flow for that. And so let's make it simple for people. We also said we need to standardize the message. We need to partner with our commercial commercial, commercial hauling customers, our municipalities, our educational institutions, our businesses, everyone needs to be saying the same thing. We need to have the same guidelines across the county, across the two counties that we service, so that no matter where people go, they understand what we call the big four. And we also moved to, um, what I look at behaviorally, when you reach people at their most primal level, you need to communicate to them. It seems really rudimentary. You need to communicate to them in shapes and colors and symbols. You start using a lot of words and language, it's not that people aren't intelligent to figure it out, they just don't have time. right? So when we talk about the big four, we're using very simple language and we're using shapes and terms and, and colors and, and, and images. And if you don't think, or if if you think that that's maybe too rudimentary, I challenge you to look at our traffic transportation system across the country. Inevitably, no matter where you go, you approach an intersection and you know what one of three colors means. You know what to do at red, yellow, and green, and while everyone looks a little bit different, you know, the traffic lights look a little bit different, generally it's the same shape. You understand what that means. That's how you're moving people to act at its most simplistic level. And then finally, it seems very obvious to say we need to publicize um, we take responsibility and i think industry-wide but particularly like Swama takes responsibility we didn't do a good job of helping people understand what recycling is and educating them about the entire process most people think of recycling as what i'm calling materials sortation putting stuff in the bin we did not do a good job really closing the loop and talking with them about what recycling processors do, the challenges that they face, and that ultimately, what recycling means is taking a product and turning it into something new. If that doesn't exist, then something isn't recyclable. And that, again, is challenging people's philosophic beliefs. So we launched a campaign called Recycle Right Lancaster. So this is just an example of uh, a large PSA campaign, some of the visuals, just to give you a flavor of some some of the things that we were um, showing and telling people. So challenging people that, first of all, recycling isn't what you think. The numbers don't mean what they do. So when you're confused in how do you know what to throw, you just need to focus on the big four. Four basic items, your corrugated cardboard, which that is an, a challenge in and of itself to try and explain to people what corrugated means. Metal food and beverage cans is the second, glass bottles and jars, and then plastic bottles and jugs with a neck. And very simply, giving them simple directions on what to do with it.
7: How many of you in here represent governments? How many of you in represent haulers, processors, brands? I think what we're trying to do on a national level, Katie did a great job of outlining in her presentation, that's really what EPA has been trying to lead this effort around. So I'm just going to speak to you from my heart for a couple of minutes. Recycling is not dead. China is not responsible for the challenges that we're facing today, and plastics are not evil. Especially three through sevens. Some commodities that you used to get paid for, you're now having to pay for. From a local government and other processing, other folks in this business, you're having challenges. We are America. We are going to overcome this, and no other country and nobody can stop us. Only we can stop us. How do we do that? We do it together. Everybody in this room has to work together. And that's what we've been trying to do over the last few months. You have the support of this administration. You have the support of the president. You have the support of Administrator Wheeler. That is why I am here today. That is why I have been traveling all over this country. I've spent a total of three days in my house this month in in April alone. Because I've been talking about wasted food and I've been talking about the challenges around recycling. So you have the commitment of the federal government to help us get through this. But we have to work together. Recycling is not dead. Recycling can make you money. We have data that shows that we made 750,000, 57,000 jobs in this country around the recycling industry. $6.7 billion annually in tax revenues, and yet, we threw away $9 billion worth of materials. Think of the money that you could have made. No offense, I have this problem with the words recycle right. You either recycle or you put it in trash because if you don't do it right, whatever that means, it's going in the trash. We've got to start with the consumers and stop blaming each other and stop pointing at each other because for the brands, they've made commitments to their consumers that they will provide more recycled content. They've made those commitments to them. For those of you in government, Those consumers are your constituents. So you're all working for the same people. We are all working for the same people. We need education and outreach. We need updated infrastructure. We need solid markets. And how do we know we're making progress? We do that through effective measurement. Measurement matters. Quantity and quality matters. And that is what we're doing in this effort that we're we're doing nationally. We're reconvening in November on National Recycles Day but we're gonna have a recycles week and we're gonna start off on November 11th with our veterans. There are jobs in the recycling world for our veterans. There are jobs in the recycling world for everyone in this country, and so my appeal to you today is for let's all work together, let's all come together, stop pointing at each other, work together, and then you can sell to China, you can sell to Japan, you can sell to Indonesia, and hopefully you will sell to people in America and have products that are bought here, used here, and made into new products right here in the United States.
0: Listen as Michelle Nestor from Nestor Resources talks about recycling and reuse from the design stage onward. What kind of changes are you seeing and what opportunities are you seeing out there?
8: Well, I think we're, we're starting to take a look at, and this is going to be a little slower, but it's still a change. And in, we've always looked at the end of the pipeline. So, and you know, and we are waste management professionals, so that's what we do. We take a look at when people discard things or they have no use for them anymore, it becomes our job on what to do for the with those. But I think we're realizing when you look at particularly the recycling part of our industry, that unless we do something upstream. It also affects our job. And I mean, the case in point is all the plastics that we have to deal with that really we have no market for. And recycling is, you know, traditionally been people have collected things in developing countries because they didn't have the natural resources to replace those things to make other items. Where we've legislated recycling and and we collect things, hoping there's a market. So if we don't look at design for repair and reuse, um, I think it's going to make the the waste and recycling industry's job that much harder because we're fighting a battle that we can't turn the faucet
0: off. Right. And do you think with the the China and now the the India ban? Um, I mean, like you just said, and like you've written recently, that recycling today is not sustainable. Do you think enough time has gone by that we're actually thinking of recycling differently? And are we thinking of it in a solutions-oriented way?
8: I think we're starting to think of it differently. And, you know, the circular economy should steer us in that direction. I have heard some of our large, you know, corporate waste and recycling companies make the statement that they've just put China behind them, Um, that there's no sense dwelling on it, that what they need to focus on are domestic markets and educating the folks um, who give us our material. At least still a problem. And and we're not the only ones contributing to China and India. I mean, Europe is also so... um, you know, we've had the luxury of sending our materials to countries who don't even have an infrastructure to collect their own material. And they certainly have large populations. So I think if, if we if we think that's our solution, things aren't going to get better. But if we start looking at new technologies and um, the kind of products we produce, then I think we stand a
0: chance. Listen as Jason Gates from Compology talks about the importance of establishing contamination
9: standards. One that we're really excited about is a product that's called C-Score, which is able to actually count the individual pieces of contamination inside a recycling container, whether it's a commingled recycling or, or a cardboard container, and be able to report back to a customer to let them know that They might need to remove that contamination. They might need to change their collection route and actually pick that container up with a a trash truck or even be able to enforce a penalty for having that contamination in the container in the first place. So uh, that is a product where it was born directly from customers saying, hey, could you use the images from your cameras to do this? Um, and it, it took about, uh, six to eight months for us to really develop even just the, the first prototypes of, uh-huh. and now it's, it's a product that's being used across the country with a lot of success. Oh, that's
0: great. so it is gaining steam. I was reading that you had done this and, um, I was wondering how the
9: rollout of it is going. Yeah, it, it's been a tremendous success. We started with just a handful of, of early adopting customers, And now we have uh, c C-score or contamination monitoring deployments across the United States and Canada. We've been seeing it used in a couple of different applications. Uh, Waste generators directly are using it to enforce internal corporate policies to make sure that their individual locations are are recycling the best that they can and, and meeting those zero waste goals. And then we have haulers who are using the technology to change their collection routes and actually pull contaminated containers off of recycling routes and put them onto trash routes, as well as use the information that we're providing to enforce contract uh, policy that's already in place. So a a lot of haulers already have the ability to bill their customers for contaminated loads but they haven't had the ability to identify those loads as being contaminated or really enforce with data to, to show that there, there really is a, an amount of contamination that warrants the billing in the past. And so we're really giving them the tool to do that. Oh, that's
0: great. I'm glad to hear that. And I've also heard you speak about I-squared IoT or the Industrial Internet of Things. Could you talk through that a little bit for our audience?
9: The concept of the Industrial Internet of Things zooms out a little bit further and so with compology we spend a lot of our time thinking very specifically about the waste and recycling industry and while that is an industrial application there are tons of different businesses that could benefit from the use of internet connected sensors okay. and i squared ot or the industrial internet of things is more of an umbrella term that encompasses some of these other industries and other applications. So where we're starting to see uh, industrial Internet of Things head is the larger transportation logistics industry. Okay. And in fact, we've had customers who run long-haul, over-the-road transport fleets, and they were transporting bales of recyclable material. They started taking the cameras out of the dumpsters and putting them into their long-haul transport trailers. To use for exactly the same value proposition, they want to know where their trailers are, how full they are at any time, and when they should go and service them. And that has actually opened up an entirely new line of business for Compology, where we're transitioning um, and and launching a product line specifically for over-the-road trucking, for 53-foot dry van and refrigerated trailer. But that is that is. And again, one very specific vertical within transportation logistics. We see applications regularly in manufacturing where equipment is now being outfitted with sensors to track for vibrations that may seem or, or may be a leading indicators of a, of a breakdown. Or we see jet engines with sensors on them that are reporting data back to the manufacturer to let them know when preventative maintenance should be happening and making them safer than ever. We actually see some of that technology uh, starting to appear in in trucks. Um, And there's been a lot of uh, talk recently about smart trucks in the waste business and how the connected truck is making drivers safer and helping reduce maintenance costs. And I would I would put all of those items under the umbrella of the Industrial Internet of Things.
0: And here's Adam Minter, acclaimed author and Bloomberg columnist and soon to be speaker at Waste Expo. And he talks about China's lack of infrastructure, what lies ahead in global recycling. Do you think, you heard talk of this back in uh, 2008, is China any closer to establishing more infrastructure, like modernizing their landfills or incinerators or recycling systems, or is the the issue still the same? They've
10: they've really improved a lot. I okay. mean, it's um, it, it's, there's been a tremendous improvement, um, especially in the disposal. Uh, systems. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm talking largely on the east coast of China, um, where uh, there have been massive investments made in incinerator technology. Um, you know, they're not going to, uh, at least on the east coast, because land is so valuable and so mm-hmm. scarce for development, they're just not going to develop landfills anymore, though they do have some modern landfills. So they are investing in uh, good uh, Incinerators—they're very uh, interested in, and, and have acquired Japanese incinerator technology, and, and the Japanese incinerators are, you know, are as clean as an incinerator can be. Um, so, so that's something that they've really improved uh, quite a bit. Um, in terms of the scrap recycling industry, um, it, it runs much cleaner than it did when I first arrived in China in 2002. Um, you just don't see the open burning anymore, at least in the more developed regions. I don't want to say it's always gone. It's in a massive, massive country, but but yes, to your to your question, I mean there there has been improvement, but it's, it's going to take time and it's a massive country uh, with oh, huge city clusters and and, and it does it won't it won't happen in ten years it's you're talking generational changes
0: now do you think solutions like robotics and AI can help with some of the contamination issues or is it, is it just not there yet?
10: It's not there yet. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, step one is going to be getting uh, uh, if I'm just talking, well, developing Asia in general, outside of Singapore, outside of Singapore and Japan and Korea, the developed countries. Uh, there just isn't the um, the waste sorting. Uh, you know, it's not happening yet. You don't have the recycle bin in developing Asia, including China. And so obviously, you know, um, optical sorting um, and the various robotics, it's, that's just not going to be an effective solution when you've got, you know, a massively commingled, uh, you know, truck filled with food waste and other recyclables. Um, and so no, not yet. I mean, what, what China and other developing countries in Asia really need to do is they need to be able to build um, uh, household recycling infrastructure so that they, can, that they can get to the point where they can talk about robotics. Mm-hmm. That makes sense.
0: Listen as Bill Caesar from WCA he gives great advice on servant leadership and being a great leader in this industry.
11: You know, leadership is just something I think about a lot these days, and I, you know, wonder what what you have to say about leadership. You know, they, there's a lot of new um, leadership theories out, like servant leadership, and all all these kinds of things. And uh, you know, there that's a test you can take to see what kind of leader you are, and. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, when I look at employees, my, my number one thing I do is I try to figure out if they care or not. You know, that's my, you know, just something that's that's come to me over over the course of my career. Um, and you can tell somebody cares if they come into your office yelling at you, you know, they care. You know, good employee. Um, so, you know, what what kind of leader would you say you are, Bill? You know, how do you, how do you motivate people, that kind of thing? So, I was,
12: I, I actually thought about this one quite a bit. Because it, it's not something that I um, sort of wear around, that I, I have a, a motto. Yeah. And um, I think I, I share a lot of uh, leadership characteristics that, that other people in the waste industry, other CEOs in the waste industry probably hold. And I did a little survey with, uh, with some of the people who I, I work with or, or used to work with. And uh, they came up with, with four characteristics: cuddly, <laughs> feel good, soft, and easygoing. All right, so that's not. <laughs> but I did think a lot about about this, and and I think there are there are a couple things that I would say describe my leadership style. the The first one is honest. I make a point of ensuring that everybody knows what I think is important, why I think it's important, and that I will always be straight with them, I will always be fair. I can't claim that I will always be patient, but I will always be fair, and I will always be honest, both to the people who work for me, but also for the people that I work for because I think that it's, it's as important as a manager, it's not just that you manage people, it's that, that, that you are managing um, your board, mm-hmm. you are managing uh, the people who own your, your company, who, uh, who are invested in it, that you be the same person to both sides of that equation. I think that it has served me well to this point, that I, I don't get questioned on whether or not what I think is appropriate, whether or not it, it's for the right reasons. I think that most people who work with me know that if you were to ask me what my, my approach to management, there's management by walking around. I do a little bit of walking around. Mm-hmm. I, I manage by asking questions. I ask questions all the time. 90% of the time, I don't know the answer to the questions. Right? right, I'm not asking questions to test somebody. I'm asking questions because I honestly want to know why something happened. What does it mean? What did we learn? How are we going to move forward? I don't look back on much of anything, yeah. right? I, I may not be the most optimistic person, but I am definitely a forward-thinking person. Things that happen have happened and we figure out how to move on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't dwell on those things. Uh, But I do want us to learn from the things where we make mistakes Uh, and I want people to understand how things came to be
11: so that we can better manage them. Um, You're you're in Houston and a couple of years ago there was a hurricane and um, I'm sure your your organization was very involved in the recovery efforts and probably still are. Do you have any lessons learned relative to emergency management you want to share with us?
12: If anybody's familiar with Houston, you'll know that Hurricane Harvey wasn't the first time the city flooded. It may have been the worst time, but it wasn't the first time. 2015, I believe it was, year and a half before Harvey, and it almost broke us. I don't mean financially. (laughs) I mean physically, because we had not put in place the processes, the procedures, the guidelines, the management that would enable us to go to customers, to go to residents who had been flooded, who had piled furniture and drywall and other construction debris on their curb alongside their container of waste. And in in Houston we have some contracts that are known as take-all contracts. It's at the curb, you're supposed to take it. Now, what we hadn't fully grasped was that take-all does not really mean take-all. It means take-all protrusible <laughs> waste. At least that's my definition of it. Because when we tried to take-all, it killed us. We couldn't get down a street without filling up a truck. Uh, and we were not picking up the waste. And we had these two floods within a few months of each other, and it literally crushed us. So we, f- we figure out what to do the next time. And lo and behold, here comes Hurricane Harvey. A, a real disaster, a real deal d- disaster. I mean, if, if you weren't there, it's, it's hard to describe what it was like. Our people knew what to do, and they did it. And I couldn't be prouder of them. We had 70 people that uh, within our own WCA community who uh, were forced out of their homes, We had drivers who were working for us who we had to put up in hotels Mm -hmm. because their homes were destroyed and our ability to not just survive harvey but to thrive in that environment because post the flood there's the cleanup Mm -hmm. and the cleanup lasted at least six months i could not be prouder of our organization for what they did how they learned from the mistakes of the past, how we communicated with our customers, how we brought resources in from outside of the state, and how well we served our customers in that community.
0: Thanks for listening to this roundup today, and we hope you learned as much as we did. Have a great day.